Hi, and welcome to the December edition of the Legal LGBT Podcast, the Law Notes episode. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's show, we have three amazing cases that we're going to be talking about that span all sorts of topics from religious discrimination to transgender rights. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. To take a picture of it. And it's too bad that I missed that during the recording because I'm sure they'd want to hear how festive you look today, Art. <laughs> well, this is actually because it's cold outside. Yeah, it's freezing today. And it's yeah. been. When I, when I went to sleep last night, I thought, you know, maybe I'll take my walk in the park this morning instead of going to the gym. But if it's under 40 degrees when I get up, I go down to the gym. <laughs> so I don't <laughs> get much outside walking this time of year. Maybe it's cold outside. Yeah. Uh, what did you do at the gym today, Art? Well, it's we have an exercise room in the basement of our co-op. So I do a half hour on the stationary bike. Uh, my goal is to bike at least nine miles and burn at least 400 calories, according to the indicator. Oh, wow. And then I uh, do weights for about 15, 20 minutes. You know, and I weigh myself regularly. I finally broke down and bought an electric scale. After <laughs> the Times had a little feature on electric scales and what's the best buy and all that. So I ordered it. And I was sort of shocked at how light I have become because uh, I, I used to weigh in the 160s. You know, oh. and now I've, I'm flirting with 150. Uh, if, if I weigh myself after a meal, I'll weigh 151 and a fraction. But uh, this morning, after I showered, you know, before I put on clothing and all that kind of stuff, I weighed 149.7. So, <laughs> and when I tell people I'm retiring and you know, I'm going to be 70 in January, they look at me and say, no. <laughs> I think I look old, but... You look fantastic and festive, and I wish I had your problem of standing in the shower and losing weight. <laughs> it's just... I think I lose weight because, I, you know, I don't start eating until after I weigh myself. <laughs> I don't start eating for the day. Well, I am not going to be buying a scale of any sort. I don't want to be confronted with any reminders of how COVID has wreaked havoc on my life, including my health. Um it's just been so hard to get back into going to the gym and we usually start with a cocktail early. Um, wow. So. Alcohol before noon, huh? <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> early like before lunch. I was, oh, <laughs> I was saying like early meaning happy hour time. Oh, but cocktails. That's high calorie stuff. I don't, I, I didn't start this zoom, which we're recording at 10 with a mimosa. <laughs> Okay, I'll assume you're totally sober as we go forward. <laughs> um, it's hard to stay sober talking about these stories. Oh my God. Yeah, we've got some... Um, Judge O'Connor is a piece of work. You know, it wouldn't be an episode of the podcast if we didn't at least mention Judge Reed O'Connor. And, uh, you know, for folks, um, you know, yeah, we'll get all into that. But yeah, it's... Uh, this was a really interesting, all, I mean, every edition of Law Notes has so many interesting cases that are from just all over the spectrum in terms of highlighting the way that courts decide cases that involve intimate aspects of LGBTQ people's lives and religious um, discrimination, all of that. And um, we picked three really excellent cases that we're going to talk about today. Um, and I have a feeling I'm going to guess what you're doing for law notes or for our of notes segment, um, which we'll do at the very end. Um, but let's go ahead and kick things off. If you're good with that, Art, are you ready? I'm fine. All right, let's take a tour. So our very first case. Um, Reed O'Connor. <laughs> that's not what I was going to start with. Do you want to start with Reed? I think we should. All right. Well, let's go right into it. So um We've discussed him before, but here we are with the notorious, politically motivated, right-wing judicial activist from Northern Texas, Judge Reed O'Connor. Let's talk about this latest ruling that would shield church employees and non-church employees with religious objections from Title VII anti-discrimination claims. Well, Art, that's you. 
Well, what we're talking about here is affirmative litigation. Right. Uh, we, and, and they seek out Judge O'Connor, who is the judge assigned to sit part-time in the Northern District of Texas, Fort Worth Extension Courthouse. So if you want to get a case before O'Connor, you file it there. Uh, and you have to plausibly assert that the court has jurisdiction. Uh, so sometimes they, you know, these religious litigation groups come up with unusual plaintiffs. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think there's a strong argument that this case shouldn't even be found to be justiciable at this point uh, on grounds of standing and other things. But O'Connor, he resolves all doubts in favor of the plaintiffs. So I the have plaintiffs, no idea that he was part-time. He's so prolific. Well, he's full-time in the Northern oh. District of Texas. But he only goes up to Fort Worth a few days a month for hearings up there. That's sort of an extension courthouse. It's sort of like the White Plains Courthouse in the, the uh, Southern District of New York. So uh, he, uh, they bring this case to him. Uh, this is Bear Creek Bible Church, which we're told is a non-denominational, unaffiliated Christian church and uh, a corporation called uh, Braidwood Management Incorporated, which is a for-profit business uh, run by a religious fanatic. Okay, so we've got a church that doesn't want to employ gay or trans people, or heaven forbid, non-binary people, but they're not even really mentioned. Uh, and and they, they'd rather not employ bisexuals either. Uh, and uh, we've got a business corporation run by a deeply religious guy who has the same objections. And furthermore, he claims that to a certain extent, to a certain extent, Title VII should be interpreted in such a way that even employers who don't have religious objections, but just have moral or ethical objections, also shouldn't have to uh, employ uh, LGBTQ people. All right. Title so, seven can just be a suggestion. So, so they're, they're throwing they're throwing everything they can at the wall to see what will stick here. Uh, and so they're claiming, first of all, the, the church, and they want to be certified as a class action on behalf of all churches that might share their objections, uh, which he agrees to. Uh, the church says that the religious institution exception, the church exception in Title seven should be interpreted to allow churches to refuse to employ people on any grounds based on their religion, which is a super expansive interpretation. Uh, some sort of outlier district courts around the country have embraced it, but most have rejected it. The general reading, there is a, uh, a provision of Title VII that says that basically religious institutions can prefer to employ members of their own religion. And that has been interpreted to mean that the ban on discrimination because of religion doesn't apply to churches under Title VII. But all the other prohibited grounds of discrimination do. Race, color, sex, national origin. All right, so he wants to claim that, uh, or the, the church here wants to claim that the religious exemption applies to all the Title VII categories to the extent that a church has a religious reason for discriminating. And O'Connor says, yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, so, and, and this would include all employees, not just ministerial employees who have a First Amendment uh, issue. Uh, we know from uh, the Supreme Court's most recent decision on this, Our Lady of Guadalupe from uh, a summer ago, uh, they adopted a rather expansive definition of ministerial employees and based on dicta in Justice Alito's argument, which was very carefully planted there for this purpose, they have been trying to stretch the ministerial exception as far as they possibly can. And we'll be talking about that with the next case we discuss. But you know, here they're saying, we don't even need the ministerial exception here. We don't have to call in the First Amendment here, at least as far as uh, Title VII's religious exemption applies. Now, the religious exemption of Title VII does not apply to for-profit businesses, only to uh, institutions incorporated as religious corporations. So uh, then we turn to Braidwood Management. And uh, the owner of Braidwood Management, Dr. Stephen Hotze, uh, it's, it's a uh, business engaged in various health and wellness ventures. 
And he operates it, he says, as a Christian business based on his faith. He wants his business to reflect his faith. And he says that because of that, he should be exempt under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from complying with Title VII when it comes to LGBTQ people because he has religious objections because complying with Title VII would impose a substantial burden on his free exercise of religion. And under, uh, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the government, in this case, the defendant, and the named defendant in this case is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which enforces Title VII. He says the government should not be allowed to place a substantial burden on my free exercise of religion. Uh, under RIFRA, they can only do it if there is a, uh, a compelling justification. The purpose of RIFRA was to carve an exception out of the Supreme Court's decision in Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, and uh, under Employment Division versus Smith, uh, if you are uh, subject to a, uh, a neutral law, a law that on its face does not target religion, of general applicability, that is the entire population is subject to the law, uh, you have to comply with it, even if you have religious objections. That's the general rule. Unless of course in passing the law, the legislature carves out an exception as Title VII carves out an exception for religious institutions. So here he's arguing that RIFRA applies and RIFRA is binding on the EEOC, a government agency. And uh, but Art, he's not even being sued, right? He's not being sued. This is why I say, this is why I say there's a real standing issue here, which uh, O'Connor just glosses over. He says, well, the EEOC has made it clear that if people file complaints uh, against uh, church employers or others, that the EEOC is going to pursue those complaints. And so there is imminence here. There's a possibility. There's a possibility I could get sued for something. I'm mean, claiming that neither the church nor the, co nor the company claims that they have LGBTQ applicants who are knocking at the door or that they have LGBTQ employees who are insisting on recognition for their same-sex marital partners. Or, you know, There's no imminent enforcement at all, but he finds that there's a credible threat since the EEOC has gone on record as saying that they stand ready to accept complaints and investigate and so forth. Uh, now... He, he, uh, he not only finds that RIFRA applies here, he agrees to certify a class of all religious business type employers. That is any employer who declares that they, that they operate their business as an expression of their religious beliefs and their business is a religious business, even though it's not incorporated under religious corporation law, it's incorporated as a, a for-profit business. You know, but, Hobby Lobby. Right, he, he says Hobby Lobby. He says under Hobby Lobby, at the very least closely held corporations, we're not talking about publicly traded corporations with thousands of, of owners, shareholders. Uh, so this doesn't apply across the board to any you know, the president of Ford Motor Company wakes up and says, oh, I'm religious and therefore I can't employ gay people. No, this uh, he should sue in Reed O'Connor's court. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know that Ford has any uh, any uh, manufacturing plants in the northern district of Texas, but who knows? They might. Uh, we'll have to check out what's going on in Fort Worth in the manufacturing sector. But uh, in addition, in addition, uh, he certifies a third class consisting of, quote, all opposing employers, any employer who's opposed on any basis. But he only certifies that class with, a, with respect to two interpretive questions that are posed by the complaint. And that is whether under the Bostock decision, bisexual people are protected from discrimination. And secondly, whether the Bostock decision uh, necessarily says that employers can't adopt dress codes and restroom policies, et cetera, et cetera, which require people to conform to their gender as identified at birth. Uh, and the, the court didn't rule on those questions. The court merely said you can't fire someone for being trans, transgender or gay. Uh, and in his opinion for the court, Justice Gorsuch said, we're not deciding any of these other questions. Those are for future cases presenting specific issues. All we're deciding here is you can't fire someone for being gay or trans. 
and so what uh, what more conservative lower courts have been saying is, well, that's the limit of the Bostock holding. It's, it's like the courts that wanted to limit Obergefell to saying, OK, the state has to grant you a marriage license. But that doesn't mean that anyone in the world has to respect it or recognize it you know, right. or the as government. If, as if bisexual isn't a sexual orientation. <laughs> it is. But it's one that's very confusing to these straight people. And, and the straight people who are the most confused are the ones who, of course, have bisexual latency you know gay well we won't get into that psychological stuff but anyway so he certifies that class with respect to those questions and surprise surprise he decides that under bostock bisexual people are protected from discrimination based on their sexual orientation but he says since the supreme court didn't decide this uh he uh, rejects the biden administration's administrative guidelines that say, well, now you have to let transgender people use the restroom consistent with their gender identity. You have to let them dress consistent with their gender identity. He says, no, Bostock doesn't require that. So as far as he's concerned, and he grants summary judgment on those issues, he says uh, that uh, Bostock is binding on the all opposing employers class, but Bostock only requires them not to discriminate based on uh, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, but it allows them to have dress codes. It allows them to have restroom policies. Uh, but, you know, when, when we get to the uh, religious employer type businesses and the churches, he basically says they get a pass under Title VII on uh, just about any issue involving LGBTQ employees. And he grants summary judgment, grants summary judgment against the government, but provides no explanation about what this means. That is the opinion, which was originally issued October 31st, and then he issued an amended opinion uh, on November 22nd, but it doesn't seem to change any of the holdings. It just cleans up some of the language and the citations, uh, at least as far as I can tell, or Matt Goodwin, who wrote the article for this issue of Law Notes could tell. Uh, we both looked at both opinions and neither of us could find any change in the holding. But in neither of them does he say what comes next. That is, is he going to issue an injunction against the EEOC to enforce his summary judgment? And what would that look like? And this is interesting because of the way the EEOC enforces Title VII. Uh, you are not supposed to be able to file suit as an individual under Title VII unless you have a letter from the EEOC showing you've exhausted your administrative remedies. You're supposed to file with the EEOC or with a deferral agency, which is a state or local agency that the EEOC recognizes as being able to process uh, Title VII charges. Uh, and the EEOC is supposed to investigate. Uh, if they don't complete their investigation and reach a finding within 180 days, and because they are very understaffed, they tend not to, uh, the charging party can request a right to sue letter from the EEOC, which authorizes them to go into federal court within 90 days of receiving the letter and filing on their own. But the EEOC also has authority to decide it wants to sue on behalf of somebody. And, you know, what is he going to enjoin? Is he going to enjoin the EEOC from accepting charges and investigating them? Is he going to enjoin the EEOC from issuing right to sue letters? Is he going to join the EOC from suing on behalf of the government? I mean, the charging party obviously is, is concerned and charging parties do tend to intervene if they have their own counsel as co-plaintiffs. But the EOC is the lead on, on the case and the EOC is litigating on behalf of the government, enforcing public policy. Uh, you, you might say that the charging party is an incidental or intended beneficiary of the EOC's actions and may uh, end up receiving uh, a damage award or something as part of the, uh, of the case. But to what extent is he going to issue an injunction? I haven't seen anything yet. I mean, I've, I've pulled up the case on Westlaw to see what the docket looks like, and it doesn't appear. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to tell at this point exactly what's going to be happening. Uh, but theoretically, uh, at least in the Northern District of Texas, uh, and uh, he, he didn't say I'm issuing a nationwide injunction which he is notorious for doing. He, he did that uh, against uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, Title IX. Uh, so we'll see what develops on this. But for now, this opinion is standing out there. It's in Westlaw, it's in Lexis. 
you can look at it. It's sloppy. Uh, already, various experts in, in employment law and constitutional law have taken pot shots at it in, uh, in interviews with various news media. Uh, it's a real outlier, but it's there. And it's Reed O'Connor. It's, it's an outlier and it's there and it's, and it's sweeping in its scope and it could be even worse. I can't even imagine. I, I suspect the government isn't going to file an appeal until uh, O'Connor issues an order or something implementing his summary judgment. Uh, the appeal will go to the Fifth Circuit. And there, of course, the Fifth Circuit. What do we know about the Fifth Circuit? 17 active judges on the Fifth Circuit, of which Trump appointed six. It's amazing. In, in one term, he appointed six, whereas Obama in eight years, two terms, got only three. So there are only five Democratic appointed judges, active judges on the, on the Fifth Circuit. All the rest are Republicans, remaining 12. So, you know, the chances that you get a three judge panel with a Democratic appointed majority are slim, although it happens. This one's a doozy. <laughs> It's a doozy and it's a great way to start. We'll go ahead and move on to the next segment, but I will say that I saw a piece um, in the Washington Post, I wanna say that was talking about, you know, Biden has been great about nominating appellate level uh, circuit judges to to the bench, and but they're largely in democratic states. And of course, under the Trump administration, he appointed people to the Ninth Circuit over objections from California's senators. So the, the piece was really critiquing the administration for, you know, it's time to go hard after some of these Republican states like Texas um, and, and start nominating judges to the Fifth Circuit or, and go around. Well, to do that, they've got to get buy-in from the Senate Democrats right? for the idea that what the Republicans did when they controlled the Senate, they didn't allow Democratic senators to, uh, to uh, blackball nominees uh, from their state. So we've got to get the same understanding out of the Judiciary Committee here, you know, the blue slip thing and everything. Right. We've got to get the same understanding. Also, we've got to get some of these Republicans to retire. There are Republicans serving as active judges on the Fifth Circuit who were appointed by Ronald Reagan. I mean, go senior already, guys, but they won't go senior until they got a Republican president to replace them. They're very ideological. Um, all right. So let's go ahead and take a short break. And when we come back, let's just move on to that First Amendment conversation, if that's good with you. Is that good oh. with you, Art? Yeah, that's the Indiana Court of Appeals case. Yeah. All right. So we're back. We begin. Oh, we don't begin today. All right, so we're back. This next case, as we alluded to previously, continues to shed light on the efforts by anti-LGBT groups to stretch the ministerial exception recognized under the First Amendment by the Supreme Court into something totally all-consuming that would extend generally to all religious organizations and allow them to opt out of complying with anti-discrimination laws. Like in Fulton v. Philly, um, we once again are talking about a Catholic hierarchy, Catholic institutions here. Art, talk to us about this case that we alluded to earlier. Yeah, what you said just triggers something that I should have said during our first segment, and that is another one of O'Connor's findings. He found that Title VII is not a religious neutrally law of general application. And the, the basis on which he found that, and, and I mean, hear this, Title VII was enacted based on the commerce power, and Congress decided that you had to have a certain number of employees to be covered, uh, that small, purely small local businesses were to be covered. So they set the cutoff at 15. If you have 15 or more employees, you're covered by Title VII. Okay, says Judge O'Connor, that means Title VII is not a law of general application because it doesn't apply to employers with fewer than 15 employees. Furthermore, you're allowed to discriminate against people who are members of the Communist Party, there's a specific provision on Title VII on that. And uh, in areas where there are Indian reservations, you're allowed, employers are allowed to show a preference to employ Indians. So he said, therefore, there are exceptions to the non-discrimination requirements. And under Fulton, if there are exceptions to the non-discrimination requirements, certain employers are exempt, certain kinds of discrimination uh, do, not, do not apply to certain employers. Then it's not general application. So employment division versus Smith doesn't apply. And so just as under RIFRA, you need to show a compelling interest. Wow. 
Okay. Right. Well, let so, that, <laughs> so let that sink. It's all in. alarming. Okay. Just another. You know, Connor keeps coming up in every segment. <laughs> but, but let's come back to uh, to this case, which is uh, called Payne Elliot Payne Dash Elliot versus Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis Incorporated, and this is uh, a peculiarly interesting case because of the way it departs from the usual scenario. Right? The usual scenario is a Catholic church or a Catholic school. It's almost always a Catholic church or a Catholic school, though not always, fires a gay employee who they've had, they've employed for many years, maybe as the church choir director, maybe as a teacher in the religious school, et cetera. Uh, sometimes they would, they'd receive teacher of the year awards. You know, these were very, very popular people but as soon as Obergefell went into effect, and even earlier in those states that predated Obergefell, they married their same six partners, and this is forbidden under the Catholic Church. Uh, so they get fired from their church position or from their religious school position. Uh, and under the ministerial exception, if they fall within the ministerial exception, there is no remedy against them. Uh, Title VII doesn't apply, the local anti-discrimination doesn't apply because the Supreme Court has recognized this ministerial exception and has been broadening it, broadening it. Well, this case is unusual because uh, Joshua Payne Elliott and Leighton Payne Elliott, his husband, both work for Catholic schools. Uh, Joshua was, uh, was a teacher at Cathedral High School in Indianapolis, and Leighton is a teacher at the Braybrook Jesuit Preparatory School. Both of them recognized by the Archdiocese of Indiana as Catholic schools, but neither of them is owned and operated by the church. Okay, so uh, the Archdiocese can't, can't say to them, uh, you must fire these people. I mean, they, uh, the, the Archdiocese insists that to be recognized as a Catholic school, you have to have contracts with your teachers that have a morality clause, a morals clause, that requires you to comply with the moral doctrines of the church, one of which is no same-sex marriages. Okay, so these two guys got married, and the archdiocese uh, spokesperson calls up the two schools and says, you got to discharge these people, they're violating the morals clause, and the Jesuit school well, the Jesuits are a rather independent-minded group. They said, we're not going to fire Leighton. He's a great teacher. We're not going to fire him. Uh, and so the Archdiocese is, according to the Indianapolis Star, in an article published on November 23, uh, the date this opinion issued, they said the Archdiocese is now attempting to strip Braybrook of its status as a Catholic institution. But uh, Brothers of the Holy Cross did not show as much backbone within days of being threatened by the archdiocese of losing their recognition as a Catholic school, they fired Joshua. Now, Joshua, the idea that he falls within the ministerial exception is sort of bizarre, although an argument could be made under the Guadalupe case, uh, but he teaches social studies and languages. He didn't te teach any religion. He doesn't have any religious duties as a high school teacher, entirely secular subjects. Uh, so arguably he doesn't fall within the ministerial exception, but it's a, it's a question that could be argued. But he's not suing under Title VII. In fact, he's not suing Cathedral High School. He's suing the Archdiocese of Indianapolis on a tort theory of interference with contractual relations and interference with an employment relationship. Both torts recognized under Indiana common law. So he's not invoking the state's civil rights law, which bans sex discrimination, but doesn't expressly mention sexual orientation. Many state courts now have fallen into line with Bostock and said that laws banning sex discrimination do ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. I don't think we have a binding appellate ruling from Indiana on that yet. Uh, Indianapolis has, a, has, has sexual orientation in their anti-discrimination ordinance, but it only applies to the city and city contractors doesn't apply to private employers. Uh, so he really couldn't. I mean, he could try to go into Title VII. Uh, and uh, certainly uh, Cathedral High School as uh, operation of Brothers of Holy Cross probably doesn't apply for the religious exemption. And, you know, it's arguable whether the ministerial exemption applies to him. 
but he just files a tort claim. And so the archdiocese moves to dismiss. They say, you don't have any jurisdiction over us. First Amendment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the original trial judge assigned to the case, this is in state court, the original trial judge denied the motion to dismiss, finding that he should be entitled to discovery. That on its face, his, uh, his complaint states a tort claim. And he was a party to a contract and a third party has coerced his employer to fire him by threatening to suspend their recognition as a Catholic school, which presumably would be very harmful to them. The parents who send their kids to a Catholic school might withdraw their kids or not send their kids there. Uh, so uh, the judge refused to dismiss. They immediately appealed. They, they, they wanted an emergency stay of any uh, discovery. They didn't want any of their people being deposed or anything like that. Uh, and ultimately, they petitioned the Supreme Court when the Court of Appeals wouldn't stay. And the Supreme Court sent it back uh, with the idea that uh, the judge should be recused. Maybe the judge was biased in some way against them. So a new judge was assigned after the uh, original trial judge recused himself. The new judge promptly granted the motion to dismiss, claiming there was no jurisdiction and the complaint failed to state a claim. And he dismissed with prejudice, which means that uh, Payne Elliott could not file an amended complaint. It was uh, dismissed with prejudice. Uh, so the Court of Appeals reversed the dismissal. Payne Elliott appeals. Uh, Judge Elizabeth Toman Tavidus wrote for a unanimous panel that the trial court has jurisdiction over the case, that the fact that uh, the archdiocese is trying to raise some kind of religious freedom claim doesn't mean that the trial court doesn't have jurisdiction. That determining jurisdiction is based on the complaint, not on the defenses. So the complaint, and they say the complaint states uh, pretty clearly on its face, a tort claim. And the court said, this court cannot say that it appears to a certainty on the face of the complaint that Payne Elliott is not entitled to any relief or that the allegations present no possible set of facts upon which the complaint can recover. That's the only basis you could dismiss a complaint. You can't take into account the defense arguments that are raised. That's you know for responding to the complaint. That's for a motion for summary judgment. And in fact, they said, because the trial court in granting the motion to dismiss took account of the factual allegations and documents submitted by the archdiocese, he, they should have, the judge should have treated it as a motion for summary judgment and should have allowed uh, the plaintiff, Payne Elliott, to respond to it, but didn't. And so this case is sent back to the trial court. We're not told which judge, but it's sent back to the trial court and he's gonna be entitled to discovery. And then there'll be a motion to dismiss. And there's a possibility. He's, he's not asking for an injunction, restoring him to his job because he's not suing his employer. He's suing the archdiocese for damages. And the archdiocese is going to have to submit to discovery unless, of course, they can persuade the court that that would interfere with their internal religious functioning. And the archdiocese is trying to assert, which many religious employers now are trying to assert uh, if they're religious institutions like schools or churches, that they have total autonomy, that under the First Amendment, the courts can't inquire into their internal religious doctrine or activities. And uh, the answer to that, first of all, is that uh, the ministerial exemption doesn't go that far. And although there are some old cases talking about uh, that courts shouldn't be interfering with internal church affairs, this isn't an internal church affair because the uh, cathedral high school is not owned and operated by the church. It's owned by an independent religious order and that independent religious order is separately incorporated and owns and operates the school. And so, uh, you know, uh, in this case, we've got a case of a, uh, a religious entity that's accused of a tort. And it's accused of a tort for interfering with the contract between an independent Catholic school and one of its teachers. So the argument that this involves internal church uh, functioning it's a bit strained, but we'll see. You know, this is this is going to go through the Indiana court system. It's not a federal court. 
Although ultimately, if uh, there is a ruling on the merits in favor of Payne Elliott and it stands up to appeal, it could be, uh, there could be a cert petition raising First Amendment issues uh, because uh, religious entities are pushing as hard as they can to try to get this supercharged conservative majority on the Supreme Court, which is so in love with free exercise of religion and so un love with the Establishment Clause, uh, trying to get them to broadly extend religious freedom to include complete autonomy for churches. I mean, there are other cert petitions on file presenting similar issues. So we'll see. But uh, for now, it's, uh, it's a, uh, a short-term victory. Uh, case goes back to the trial court and Penn Elliott will get discovery. And we'll see to what extent the archdiocese tries to file interlocutory appeals from discovery rulings. <laughs> Because, you know, that's how the Trump administration kept the federal courts from deciding the transgender military ban issue on the merits. They never got around to deciding it on the merits because they just kept appealing every discovery order. I remember that. Oh, wow. I think I wrote a few pieces for Law Notes on all of those discovery issues. Yeah. Heavens, that was uh, a terrible time. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, the next case really has um, takes a total turn, which is exciting. All right, in April of 2021, Arkansas became the first state to ban gender affirming care, including puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for children under 18. States since then have sought to penalize doctors and parents who seek to provide gender affirming care to youth. This California case involves a parent who tried to stand in the way of her child, who in this instance is a dependent child of the court, and their access to care. So it's kind of a flip of what we've been talking, but it is about, you know, we have been seeing a lot of states trying to carve back on, you know, youth, parents, doctors, uh, allowing or providing gender affirming care to to kids. Um, Art, tell us about this interesting case. Okay, the, uh, the uh, child in this case, the, the name of the case is In Re DH, and it's an opinion uh, from November 10th from the California Fourth District Court of Appeal. Uh, DH was assigned female at birth, uh, grew up in a dysfunctional family situation. Uh, he came to the attention of the courts, and I say he because uh, he's now a teenager who identifies as male. Uh, when he was 13 years old, the police arrested his mother for erratic driving. And DH told the police that they had actually lived in that car since DH was five years old. Shortly thereafter, the San Diego County Health and Human Services Agency filed a dependency petition alleged that DH had suffered or was at risk of harm or illness due to his mother's failure to protect and provide for him. His father was incarcerated at the time and real dysfunctional family situation. So the court removed DH from his mother's custody and declared DH a dependent of the court. Now, as a dependent of the court, that means the court had authority to order medical care for DH. And DH at this point was 13 uh, when this occurred. And uh, DH was placed in, uh, in a uh, institutional setting uh, and began more and more to identify as male and to seek treatment and ultimately to want uh, to transition. Uh, DH, for example, was housed in a women's dormitory, a girl's dormitory, and wanted to be in the boys' dormitory. Uh, was started to give counseling and uh, was advised about uh, the transitional process and the fact that you can't get surgery until you're 18, but while you're a minor, you still, you can get hormone treatment. You can get uh, puberty blockers, things of that sort. And so uh, DH became insistent that he wanted to transition and applied for it to the court for permission. And uh, the court notified his father and his mother and his mother flipped out. Religious objections, etc. Uh, she had wanted uh, to have reunification, and there was an attempt at sort of providing reunification services between her and the child, but that fell apart, uh, partly because the child did not want to go back with her. 
because of her uh, religious disapproval of his gender identity and uh, her eagerness to interfere. And ultimately what happens here partly is she sort of bungled the procedures and stuff. She didn't raise objections at the right time. Uh, she didn't reserve objections on the record and things of that sort. Ultimately uh, in a, an ex parte ruling, uh, the court authorized beginning hormone therapy. And she filed a petition uh, seeking to vacate that order. Uh, the court said the petition came too late. She said, well, my due process rights as a mother were violated. And the court said, no, there was a court proceeding that made that uh, designated DH as a dependent child of the court. And therefore the court did have authority. Uh, she challenged the jurisdiction of the court to order hormone therapy. And uh, the court had authority and uh, her religious objections came too late. Uh, and that the uh, reason she stated uh, did not strike the court as being at all persuasive. Uh, she claimed uh, when she went to one hearing, there was a visiting judge sitting in and that the visiting judge refused to uh, vacate the ex parte order. And she felt that the, uh, she charged that the visiting judge didn't realize that he had the authority to vacate the order. And the court said, well, there was no basis for that at all. She claimed that the court had not considered the best interest of DH, which she insisted was to remain a girl. Uh, and the court said, well, you haven't persuaded us that that's in the best interest that the court did inquire into that it had to uh, before it could authorize transition. Uh, and so ultimately the, the appellate court affirmed the, uh, the order and, uh, and in fact, DH, uh, they didn't even stay while, while her petition uh, was pending to vacate the order. She also asked that they stay to the commencement of treatment and the court refused. So the treatment has already begun. Uh, so that, that horse is already out of the barn, you might say. Uh, so uh, this, is, uh, this is a total victory for DH at this point. Yeah. And so that's sort of a happy story to, uh, to, to report. Uh, I mean, DH by now is close to majority. So pretty soon the mother would have no standing to intervene at all. But uh, as, as DH is still a minor, mother still had standing to intervene. Right. It's a reminder of how oftentimes queer youth are um, disowned or rejected by their families um, and how vulnerable uh, they are. And so it's good to see the state doing an evaluation of, you know, best interest and representing DH's best interest in this case. And um, it's a it's a positive story and I'm happy to end on it. And I'm wondering, we're going into our of note segment. I'm gonna guess, are you doing full, an update on uh, Catholic social services? I'm doing two updates very quickly <laughs> on uh, Catholic social services and on Arlene's flowers. We had oh. two significant settlements to report. All right, so first Arlene flowers, a cert petition, another cert petition was penned. Arlene's flowers is the case in which Baron L. Stutzman, who was the proprietor of this florist, uh, refused a longtime valued customer's request that she make the floral arrangements for his same-sex wedding. She said, you know, I love you. They, they hugged, there were tears in the eyes. She said, I can't do this. My religion forbids me from doing this. Uh, ultimately, uh, the couple, uh, Robert Ingersoll and Kurt Freed, they filed suit and so did the attorney general under uh, the Washington state anti-discrimination law, which covers sexual orientation. State courts held there was a violation of the law. Uh, a cert petition was filed and it was pending while Masterpiece Cake Shop was being considered. The case was remanded to the Washington Supreme Court to consider Masterpiece Cake Shop and go through again. So the Washington Supreme Court issued a second opinion saying we've combed the record. We can find no statements of hostility or bias on the basis of religion here. Uh, this does not have the taints that the court found a masterpiece and they reaffirmed. And so there's a new cert petition, which was denied. And then after the Fulton case was decided, a, a new petition for cert was filed claiming that as a result of Fulton, uh, the court should reconsider. And in fact, the petition was already uh, circulated for, uh, for conference a few times, but Baron L. Stutzman finally decided to give up she said, you know, I'm getting on in years. I think I'm going to retire and I will leave it to the people who will be running my business, who are going to take over my business. They can decide whether they're going to do floral arrangements for same-sex weddings. So 
Uh, she agreed to pay damages of $5,000 to the couple. And they announced that they would do- donate the money to a local PFLAG chapter. Oh, amazing. All right. And the party what a good st- ending to that story. Finally, the party stipulated to dismiss the pending cert petition. Oh, thank God. <laughs> the element is in the Fulton case. And this is this is one that made, that made people a bit angry because, you know, the, the Justice Roberts came up with this weird theory in Fulton that uh, the city's anti-discrimination policy was not a law of general application because it reserved to the commissioner uh, the ability to make waivers or exceptions to the non-discrimination rule, even though it was pointed out to the court that that authority didn't extend to the certification process that was an issue here, the issue of certifying same-sex couples to be foster parents, that waiver policy applied to the placement process that they could take race and gender and stuff into account in deciding whether a particular certified couple was a good fit for a proposed for a foster child. Uh, so it was even irrelevant. I mean, but, uh, you know, Roberts wanted to put together a unanimous decision by the court in favor of Catholic social services. And this was the way to do it without overruling employment division versus Smith, which he didn't want to do, but uh, three members, maybe even four members, maybe even five members of the court would like to do it. But, uh, you know, he was assigning the opinion. He wasn't going to assign the opinion to one of them. He was going to keep it for himself and, and avoid doing that. So we had these angry partial, you know, concurrences, partial dissents. Uh, but at any rate, the case goes back uh, to the Third Circuit and ultimately back down to the district court. And the city decided, you know, what they could have done was they could have rewritten their contract to do away with the waiver power. And then say, we will only enter to this new contract if you agree that you won't discriminate. They could have done that. But they decided that that would just generate another lawsuit. And that might generate another lawsuit that would result in the case going to the Supreme Court and overruling employment division versus Smith. So they decided sort of discretion being the better part of valid, they would pay damages to capital social services and they would make a new contract with them that would exempt them from complying with the anti-discrimination policy with respect to sexual orientation and gender identity. So that's the settlement there. And uh, the Catholic Social Services gets $56,000 in damages. But here's the part that's gonna make people angry. (laughs) Not what we just heard. (laughs) Beckett Law, which uh, represented the plaintiffs in this case, will receive almost $2 million in legal fees for a case that went to the Third Circuit and then to the Supreme Court, and then, you know, argued and briefed at the Supreme Court, et cetera, they ran up the bills. And so they're getting close to $2 million from the taxpayers of the state of, of the city of Philadelphia for litigating this case against the city. And that made me angry. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, uh, oh, wow. $2 million, $56,000 goes to Catholic Social Services. And they, they, they did have damages here because the city refused to renew their contract and they relied on revenue from the city for performing these evaluations. And, you know, there several years they, did, they were, weren't getting this revenue. So they had a claim and, you know, it was a liquidated, a claim that could be liquidated at a specific reasonable amount. And that's a reasonable amount in light of the fact that they won the case. But uh, $2 million, I think it's $1.95 million. Right. I've watched, you know, Lambda Legal and other organizations sue for years for marriage equality. And $2 million is like, that's ridiculous. Nobody gets that. Yeah. Um, and it also just highlights how much more money all of these, the Beckett Fund, the... Um, uh, Why? Depending for you to Yeah, Liberty. Um, all of these Liberty Council. Liberty Council have so much more money than the LGBT litigation groups. I mean, they're just rolling in it. So um, it's alarming. Art, do you have any holiday plans? What? Let's end with some levity. Holiday plans? Yeah. Cool holiday plans. Between Christmas and New Year's, I'll be grading 120 contracts. Files. <laughs> Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> but it's my last set of 120 contracts finals because I'm retiring from the full-time faculty at the end of this semester. That's great. Uh, and uh, I don't expect to be teaching first-year contracts in the future. I will be teaching sexuality and the law, which is my sort of seminar size class yeah. this spring and uh, on into the future, presumably. 
Uh, I will be an emeritus professor. Ooh, that sounds even more fancy. <laughs> well, it's, it's the way the school gets we elders off the payroll. <laughs> but, but what really is a sense of finality and, and sort of a gratifying one at a faculty meeting this week, we appointed an adjunct professor. Uh, one of my former students in employment law was appointed to be the adjunct to teach the employment law course uh, this, uh, this uh, spring that I would have taught if I was continuing. And I've already been in email contact with him. And uh, he says, I was the first professor he spoke to at a recruitment event that we did in the spring of 2001. He was a member of that class in the fall of 2001 during the 9-11 when you know, our school was suspended for weeks because we're, we're in the uh, vicinity of the World Trade right. Center. Sure. And, and, everything. and so it was a, a vivid first year, but he took my employment law course and now he practices in New Jersey. He's an employment lawyer, it's, that's his practice. And now he's gonna teach the course. And so it was very gratifying to me. Uh, we've come full circle there. Bravo, Art. And I know I'm, I'm teaching my professor's law, gender, and sexuality course, and we use your casebook. I mean, the legacy that you've, that you've left, um, you know, and you will continue to teach that course. But just how, think of how many students, how many people are reading you, whether it's law notes, whether it's your casebook. Um, just the transformative nature of what you've done. And almost 40 years of teaching labor law, employment law, contracts, legal ethics. I still get calls from former students with legal ethics questions, even though the last time I taught that course was in the 1990s. (laughs) That's wild. You're like, I can't do this anymore, please. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I tell my contract students, I'm your contracts professor for life. So, you know, if you have a contracts question, you want to kick it off, you know, bounce it off me, give me a call. Wow. I remember I got an A plus in contracts, one of the only ones and got that little certificate. And I can't remember the first thing about it now. <laughs> you can't remember contracts? No, I, you know, I didn't. If I think... asked you to explain the parole evidence rule, you'd be stumped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't even sure I remember the mailbox rule. <laughs> well, that's sort of obsolete with the email, isn't it? I guess so. I still get crap in the mail. All right. We have to end this. Thank you so much. Happy holidays to all our listeners. Happy holidays, Art. It's always a pleasure to see your face. And that is definitely a Christmas sweater. (laughs) Well, there is green, white, and red in it. Oh, I'm going to snap a picture to include so that people can... You guys can do... You guys be the adjudicators. Is this a holiday sweater or uh, or not that Art is featuring today. All it's right, Art. Traditional Norwegian sweater. <laughs> All right, take care, Art. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.